to another t- powerful time of worship. We sang about how God is holy, how He is the only one worthy of our praise, how He is the one we need, the only one we need. Sometimes we, we forget that. Sometimes we sing songs we don't even realize what we're singing, I think. That was some powerful <coughs> truth we sang. I, uh, I found this and I thought this would be pretty appropriate to share with you this morning. Um, the story of, a, of an, old, uh, an older lady who was rather old-fashioned. And, uh, and so she was always quite delicate and elegant, especially in her language. So she and her husband were planning a week's vacation in Florida. So she wrote to a particular campground asking for a reservation. She wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, but didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in the letter. After much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term bathroom commode. But when she wrote that down, she still thought she was being too forward. So she started all over again, rewrote the entire letter referring to the bathroom commode merely as BC. Does the campground have its own BC? Is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner wasn't as old-fashioned at all when he got the letter. He just couldn't figure out what the woman was talking about. That BC business really stumped him. After worrying about it for a while, he showed the letter to several campers, but they couldn't imagine what the lady meant either. So the campground owner, finally coming to the conclusion that the lady must be asking about the local Baptist church, <laughs> sat down and wrote the following reply. <laughs> Remember, she's asking about the bathroom commode, right? He's thinking Baptist church. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground (laughs) and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. (laughs) They usually arrive early and stay late. It is such a beautiful facility, and the acoustics are marvelous. Even the normal delivery sounds can be heard. <laughs> the last time my wife and I went was six years ago. And it, was, it was so crowded, we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now, a supper is being plan- is, is planned to raise money to buy more seats. They're going to hold it in the basement of the BC. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, (laughs) but it's surely no lack of desire on my my part. As we grow old, it seems to be more of an effort, (laughs) particularly in cold weather. If you do decide to come down in our campground, perhaps I can go with you the first time you go. (laughs) Sit down with you and introduce you to all the other folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. Signed, the campground owner. It is, uh, it is far too easy to misinterpret things. <laughs> to, to hear one thing and in your mind be thinking something else. And uh, I think that sometimes happens with, with the Word of God, with, with Scripture. We come to hearing Scripture or hearing messages taught with all our preconceived notions. And some of those preconceived notions are great and others may not be. And so when we hear things, we often then begin to interpret that through our filter and we can misinterpret things much like um, that poor, poor I don't know if the poor lady or the poor, poor campground owner, you probably won't get that business. But, um, but it's so easy to misinterpret things. So I, I find it helpful that we've been able to come together and always start with a bit of review. And, and I want today to be no different.
we started this summer talking about where we wanted to go, what we wanted to be as a group, and what was that community that we, we came up with, the, the, the name we decided on, to be a community of grace. And so our goal, our ultimate goal, is this community of grace, which we defined as being a, a group of people who love and accept you unconditionally, who love and accept you right where you're at, no strings attached, period. That means regardless of what you do and how you behave and how you act, we will still love and accept you. That doesn't mean we don't care about your behavior and we don't talk about your behavior, but we love you in spite of your behavior. We accept you in spite of it. And, and our ultimate goal in all this then is to, is to lead people to that deep, intimate walk with Jesus Christ, that they get to know what it means to live in Him and from Him. Because as we sang this morning, He is the one that we need. He is the King of kings. He's the one that's worthy of our praise. And so that's what we wanted to become. That's what we want to get to, this community of grace. But we talked about often where we're coming from, which is really living out of our flesh. Where we end up being a community of good intentions, where we're striving to fix people, striving to to clean up their act and, and get their behavior sorted out, but we're really living out of our own strength and resources. That may look good. Some people's flesh looks wonderful. looks better than, than a lot of people in some cases. The Pharisees had great looking flesh, but it was in their own strength and it was, it was whitewashed tombs, Jesus said about them. And so what we saw then was, was God's answer for that was for Christ to live in us. And so Christ living in us becomes the answer. Rather than us trying to live out of our own strength, we want to see it Christ living in us. But what made that all possible was the cross. And, and the cross is the central event in all of, human, all of history, all of humanity. It is the, the place where we were set free from living out of our own strength and made possible that Christ can live in us. It's where Jesus died that we might be forgiven for how many of our sins? Every single one of them. Every single sin. Even the ones you haven't yet committed. You have been forgiven because Jesus Christ has paid that sin. Paid that debt. But that's only half of it. See, what was the other half? What else took place on that cross? What happened to you and I? We died with Christ. We were crucified with Christ and we no longer live, Paul says in Galatians. And so the other side of it is that we died. The, the old person died for this purpose that God can make you into someone new. Someone different. A new creation that is now indwelt by God Himself. And that's what makes this possible. Christ living in us is a result of the cross. So sometimes people ask the question, well, if that's the case, then why don't I see more victory in my own life? Why do I continue to struggle? Why do I continue to fail? Why do I continue to make mistakes? I mean, if that's really true, if I'm really dead, if I'm really a new person and Christ lives in me, why do I still make mistakes and struggle? Or others ask, don't I have a part? What's my role in all this? And the answer is we do have a part. We have an incredible part. In fact, that part is, is why we struggle at times. Because we don't fulfill our part properly all the time. And our part really is faith. 
It's our trusting in Him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, the life that I live right now in this body, today, this Sunday morning, the life that I live, I live how? By faith. By trusting. By depending upon Jesus Christ. By, by relying upon His strength and not my own. The, the followers of Jesus, they asked Him a, a similar question. They said, what must we do to do the works of God? What's my part? What do we need to accomplish? And Jesus answered in John 6.29 says, this is it. This is your part. To believe in the One whom He has sent. To trust Me. To rely upon Me. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a group of people. I've been reading through the Gospels recently and I'm marveling at how Jesus time and time again was looking for people of faith. Do you still not believe? Do you still not trust Me? And He's looking for men and women to say, God, You are the King of kings. You are the all-powerful God and Creator of this universe. And I choose to put my trust and my faith in You rather than myself or rather than other people. I'm going to trust you to do it. I'm going to trust you to live. And so our role, our part is now to trust God to be God in us. And we don't do that all the time. We don't do that so well uh, for many of us. And so what ends up happening now is, is God is now teaching and training us to, to have a deeper walk with Him, to, to kind of mature our faith in Him. And it's this journey and this process that's so crucial and that's the one that we're all on. So, what does that journey look like is what I want to kind of look at this morning. Amen? So, why don't we open up with a word of prayer then towards that, that goal. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are holy. I thank You that You are God. And I thank You that You love us. That You are at work right now in every one of our hearts a work that You began a long, long time ago and a work that You have promised to complete in the day of Christ Jesus. It's a work that is in progress. A work that is drawing us into a deeper walk and a deeper trust in You, Father. And I look forward to this morning and I pray that You'll help uh, open our eyes to that we might see where it is that You're working and what You're doing, that we might see how we could respond to that, Father. So I confess my dependence upon You and ask You to, to teach and, and speak through me and let us all walk out of here knowing You in a better way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we've been, um, been using the, the Genesis story as a bit of a backdrop for our uh, our times together, and, and, and this morning's gonna be no different. So, if you want to grab your Bible, turn to Genesis. It's probably the easiest book of the Bible to find. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna key in on chapter three, but uh, to get there, I want to start with uh, with something in chapter one. To, to kind of bring us up to speed again about what God has done in, in the creation and, and how he, he brought it about. And uh, let's start in verse 26. 
Then God let, said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our own likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see here is, is God is up here. God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. And they, and they say to each other, let us, there's a trinity, let us make man in our own image. And in Genesis 2 and verse 7, it shows us how God made man, how he made Adam. He, he formed from the dust of the ground and He breathed in life to him. And, and so when God made man, He was the source of life to man. He provided breath or He provided life to what man needed. So God was the source of everything that man needed. He was that source of life. And although it doesn't explicitly say the same thing when God made woman, that he didn't breathe life into her, I think it's safe to say, based on, on uh, what woman is today, that her being a spiritual being, God did the same thing. He breathed life into her. Meaning God became the source of life to both man and woman. Now, there's something I, I want to stress a little bit is that notice in verse 27, he said, it says that God made man, He made them male and female. Do you see that? At the end of verse 27? Now, what, my point is this, is that when God made man, He made a female version of man and He made a male version of man. When God is saying, let us make man, He wasn't talking about just the male version. He wasn't just talking about Adam. He says, let us make man. And He made a male version and a female version. And, and what that is important to understand here is, is that when God made man, both male and female, He made them equal. Man and woman are equal. That was what God intended. The, the, down, or the difficult thing I think our society has done is what we've interpreted equality as being the same. And that is a great mistake. To be equal doesn't mean you have to be the same. But I think what we've done in our society is if you're not the same, then somehow you're not equal. But, if, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be with the opposite sex for probably more than 20 minutes to realize men and women are different. Amen? Amen. Men and women are different. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's really not. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that men and women are different. They're supposed to be different. They're, that's the way that God made them. If He wanted them to be the same, then, then He would have made man and that's it. Or he made, you know, there'd be no male or female version of it. It would just been one. But He intended to make man and woman equal but different. And unfortunately, what we often do is we try to make men into women and women into men. And that's not the point. Let us celebrate the fact that we're different. I mean, because together we get to see really the whole picture and concept of who God is like. See, look at the characteristics of God. Remember, he said, let us make man in our own image. So the characteristics of God should be seen in both male and female. So we see God is, is a comforter, a nurturer. Well, who does that best describe, male or female? Female, yeah. I mean, I, I see that every day with my, with my wife and our girls. She is far more comforting and nurturing than I am. And that's great. That's, that's wonderful. But we also see another characteristic of God is God is a warrior. 
Who does that best describe? Male. And, and one isn't better than the other. They're equal, but they are different. And so, here we see God making man and woman equal, but not the same. And so, how do these two begin to relate to one another? Because they're meant to relate to one another. Well, if God's the source, what happens here? Well, instead of finding life from the other person, because they're finding life from God, what these two get to do now is they get to share life. It's, it's incredible what we see here, that, that God pouring life into man, and then man gets to overflow that life into the woman. And, and the woman receiving life from God, she gets to pour that life into the man. And, and what ends up happening is, it never ends with you. It starts with God, and it comes to you, and then it goes out. That was what God was intending. And so really what happens with these, these, uh, these relationships here, is they're sharing life. God's the source of that, but then they're sharing it back and forth between the man and the woman. Does that make sense? But God gave them a charge. He gave them a command in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 28, He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In essence, we could say that God really said there are two responsibilities you have. One, be fruitful and multiply. Have a family. And two, take care, take care of the garden. Take care of the world. Two responsibilities. Now, if we were to, to try to divide up those roles and responsibilities between Adam and Eve, between the man and the woman, how would we do that? Generally speaking, it's not to say that one is only doing one and the, one, the other is doing the other completely. But if we were to generally divide up these responsibilities, who would be looking after the family and who's looking after the garden? Yeah. So God says to the man, you essentially gives him the responsibility of the garden and to the woman, family. And again, one's not better than the other. They're different roles, but both are equal. And so it ends up happening now, God being the source of life to man, He can now share that life with the world, with the garden. And the same with the woman. God being the source of life to the woman, she gets to share her life with the family. And so what we see is this, this almost waterfall effect. Where, where God's the head of the, of the river and it flows into man and into the garden and to the woman. And, and God is a source for the woman and it flows into the man and flows into the family. And it's just, it's just pouring down. Do you, do you see that? And, and everyone was happy. Everyone was content. And then God said another command. He said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because in the day you eat of it, what's going to happen? You will surely die. And what we, he was talking about is if you are choosing to find independence, if you want to find life other than in me, and that's what the tree of life was about, you can choose to find life in me or you can choose to find life in of yourselves and in other people. The day you do that, what are you going to discover? It doesn't satisfy. It's not good enough. 
And so if that were to happen, God's saying, you will be cut off and separated from me and then you will experience death. Does that make sense? So, that's what happened. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were disconnected from God. That relationship was now broken. They could no longer receive life from God. And Eve, she was deceived into doing that. So she broke that. And then Adam, who was right there the whole time but didn't say a single word, he looked at Eve and realized what he just lost. He realized he just lost his wife. And he's still connected to God, but he's now disconnected from his wife. And he's got a choice to make now. Does he choose Eve or does he choose God? And it says in Timothy where Adam, or sorry, where Eve was, dis- was deceived, what did Adam do? He disobeyed. Meaning Adam made a conscious choice. He said, I would rather be with my wife than be with God. And so he too was disconnected from his source of life. And so in that day, they experienced death. In their spirit, in their soul, and in their body, they began to experience death. In that very day. As, as Bill Gillum used to say, you know, if if in the day you eat, you die, if you ate of that tree uh, Wednesday morning, you didn't have a Wednesday evening prayer service. I mean, it was, it was done. It was in that day. It was happening. And so that moment that they ate from that wrong tree, they were now disconnected and cut off from God. Did they stop needing life? Did they stop needing life? No. They still needed that life, that love, that worth, that acceptance, that significance, that that value. They needed it, but they were now disconnected from the only one that could provide it. So where do they begin to turn? Everything else. We see this time and time again. In fact, you may have lived this when you were younger. But think about when maybe you're courting, when you're dating your, your spouse, obviously before they were your spouse, and, uh, and you're, you're looking at this person and saying, wow, this, this person loves me. I can't believe it. I'm, I'm just so thrilled with the fact that, that I am loved by another person. And, and that sense, that feeling puts you somewhere north of cloud nine, right? I mean, you are just overwhelmed by the fact that somebody in this world loves you. And, and in fact, you would do anything now for that. I remember my brother, when he was dating his, uh, his wife, the first time he was invited over to his, uh, his girlfriend's family's house for dinner, he came home and he said, Mom, I had salad and I didn't die. I mean, he, he was so amazed he had something green and it was okay. But he would never do that at home, but he would do that at the girlfriend's house because who was he trying to impress? The girlfriend and the parents, right? So he would do anything to keep that love. And it was great because he would just give a little bit and he'd get a little bit back. And think, wow, this is wonderful. This is it. This is, this is what it's all about. And, and so what ends up happening with two young people, when they find that connection, they find that sense that, man, this person's filling my value, my need, my love, my worth. This person's life to me. I'm going to marry this person. Because from here on in, we're going to be okay. This person's going to provide my life. And so it ends up happening. Man's looking for life in the woman and woman's looking for life in the man. And it never really seems to work. I mean, at the beginning, it sort of works. You know, I give you a few drops and you give me a few back and I think, man, this is, this is great. This is an untapped well. But you see, the thing with men, men tend to be goal-oriented. Amen, woman? <laughs> we tend to be focused on something. And, and during the dating and the courting process, guess what our focus is? 
And for the woman, that's great. I mean, they love the attention. But the moment guys were married, guess what? Now, what do we have to provide for? We've got to provide for the family. So where does our attention turn? To our work. To our responsibilities. And our focus begins to, to turn towards the garden, towards our work, in order to provide for the one we love. But then how do you think that makes the woman feel? I mean, before she was the be-all and end-all, the, the, the center of this guy's universe, and suddenly now she's been relegated to second place. And so she begins to feel slighted. And now what ends up happening is she's not getting everything she needs from him. So where does she begin to turn? To the family. And begins to try to find life somewhere else. And so what we begin to see is the man and woman no longer satisfy one another, so they begin to look other places. Men to his work. Thinking at work, if I'm respected, then I'll feel good about myself. For the woman, if I can have a family that loves me, then I'll feel good about myself. And, and so what ends up happening then is as they begin to find life in other places, then they get more frustrated with one another. And the more frustrated they get with one another, they begin to, get to drive themselves or drive the other person to somewhere, somewhere else. I remember seeing this when I, when I worked at Chrysler. There was, a, there was a man there who was the, the manager. He was one step below the vice president of engineering. And, and he was this big man. I mean, he, he was something like seven feet tall and seven feet wide. I mean, the, the guy was literally a giant. He wasn't one of those little rakes. The guy was just, just you know, enlarged. He was just mammoth, this guy. And everyone literally looked up to him physically and, and, and so forth. And, and, and he was the boss. He, he had complete sway over us. Well, one time we were on a road trip and, and one, of my, one of my friends, my co-workers, was driving in the car with this guy when he got a call from his wife. And, and on the cell phone, and, and my friend could just hear her yelling at him, screaming at him. Because, you know, you're never home. You're working on Saturdays. You're out on this trip. You're never home. And just, just laying into him. It was so bad, my friend had to pull to the side of the road get out and wait. And about 10, 15 minutes later, this big, giant, seven-foot man comes out hanging his head. All sheep is. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. We, we, can, we can get back in the car now. Let's, let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. He was, he was feeling worthless at home. So guess where he would spend all his Saturdays? At work. Because guess what? Everyone at work respected him. A, he was the boss. And B, he, he just received that kind of respect. And so what ends up happening is the more friction that happens here, the more we begin to try and find in other places, be it family or work. And, you know, when that doesn't work, because again, it's never going to work, because there's only one that can be that source. When that doesn't work, then we begin to add other things to the list. We might add things such as hobbies. Or we might add sports. Or friends. Or church. And, and these lists are interchangeable. Maybe the man starts to try and find life in the family. Maybe the woman begins to try and find life in a job. And we begin to desperately seek and try to find satisfaction. And the one place we're not going to is God. Now, as Christians, this link has been restored. Amen? We're now connected again to God. But that doesn't mean we go looking to Him. I mean, we may have God, but we may not trust in Him. 
I mean, that's the story of the children of Israel over and over and over again. God was there. He was with them. But who did they trust? Themselves and others. And so we may have Him, but we may not rely upon Him. So this is the state that man is in right after the fall. And so God shows up on the scene and they immediately begin to blame each other. Right? Adam says, God, it's your fault, first off, because you put this woman here. If you didn't put the woman, I'd have been okay. So first he blames God, then he throws Eve under the bus. God turns to Eve, doesn't say anything, turns to Eve, and Eve throws Satan under the bus. And then, now God's going to give what we often call the curse. But I want you to see the reason behind this curse, because it's far more than maybe you thought of before. So, grab your Bibles again, turn to Genesis chapter 3. And after he, he curses Satan, and we see there, we see the cross. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, you're going to bruise the, the seed of the woman. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The bruising of your heel, that's Jesus dying on the cross for us and us dying with him there. That, the, the whole Calvary experience, that's, that's Jesus' heel being bruised, but he will crush Satan's head. That's him overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming Satan. There's the victory. And so in Genesis 3, I think it's in verse 14, we already see the cross. It's the first prophecy was to come. And then he's going to turn his eyes and attention towards Adam and Eve. And so let's start with Adam in verse, I think verse 17. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So what God does here is He looks at this relationship between man and the garden. And Adam is trying to find life from the garden. Trying to find life from anywhere at this point. And so what God adds to this relationship is he adds toil. Makes it difficult. Now, why would God do that? I mean, is God, is God punishing Adam? Is he saying, man, I can't believe you snubbed me and you rejected me. Well then, here's right back at you. How do you like it? Is that what he's doing? No. Notice, God does not curse Adam. His curse is the ground because of you. God curses the ground, He curses the garden, He has toil to the relationship, but He does not curse man. But why would He do that? Why add, why add the toil and the frustration to this relationship? So that maybe Adam would like realize, okay, I'm having frustration with the garden. I should turn to God, not the garden. Exactly. Exactly. So that if Adam could somehow find sort of almost a little bit of life here, not completely, but, you know, quasi little bit, enough just to get by, guess what he would do? He'd stay there. He'd settle for it. You know what? It's not great, but it's better than nothing. So I'm happy. I'm content. So God adds toil here to frustrate this relationship. So Adam is not satisfied. Meaning, he's got to go and turn somewhere else. Unfortunately, that's when we turn to sports, hobbies, friends, and, and um, church, or work, or all sorts of things. We turn to other things 
But eventually we run out of options and it's then and often only then that we begin to go back to God. But that's what he's doing here. His, his curse is really a blessing for you and I. It's the blessing that God has bestowed upon us that we would go back to Him to find life in Him. Because if we didn't have it, we would never go back. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He says, too often we settle for mud pies by the beach. Or sorry, mud pies by the, uh, by the end of the road instead of the picnic at the beach. We settle for such a little bit of what God has for us. And so God frustrates that little bit. And you know what? That doesn't feel good. That hurts. It's not a lot of fun to go through that kind of pain and toil. But it's so necessary because only will I come to find satisfaction when I come to God. Does that make sense? Isn't this an exciting, uplifting message today, right? Don't worry, it gets worse. Let's turn to Eve. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, I, um, I have never first-hand experienced labor. Thank you, Lord. Um, I, I've been there to witness it um, four times, but I've never, never experienced it. I'm not complaining. But every woman I've asked this of has, has flat out agreed that the pain in raising children is far more the, than the pain in giving birth to children. Uh, even if your labor was 24 hours or 36 hours long, that does not compare to the 18 to 25 years of labor and bringing these kids up. And, and that is far more painful because it just never seems to end. And, and they, they just wear you down. And so there is great pain in this relationship that God adds. <laughs> Don't tell me that. <laughs> I had hope. <laughs> so he adds pain to this relationship. Again, for the exact same reason. So that she would not find life here. That no matter how hard she looked, no matter where what she did, she simply would not be satisfied here and would have to go back to God to find satisfaction there. So he has pain to that relationship. But he also says at the end of verse 16, he says, Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now the, Greek, the, sorry, the Hebrew word here translated desire is a very complex and unique Hebrew word. It shows up three times in the Old Testament. Here in Genesis 3, once in Song of Solomon, and another time in Genesis 4 and verse 7. And to understand what this word desire means, we need to look at these other, trans, other, other places where it's used, particularly in Genesis 4 and verse 7, where it says, where God talking to Cain, he says, Cain, you have to be careful because sin is out, it's crouching at the, at the door, and it desires you. What was sin desiring to do with Cain? Eager to control you. Eager to control, yeah. It's exactly what it is. So, sin, desperately trying to control Cain, is what that desire was. And so, God, turning to Eve, He says, Eve, you will desire, desperately try to control Adam, and Adam, you're going to rule over Eve. Now, think about this for a second. Husband and wife, each trying to control one another. What's going to happen? Yeah. 
all kinds of conflict. Now think about this. How many times have we heard about you know, God is for marriage and God loves marriage and He's, he's wanting to protect marriage? Well, if He wants to protect marriage, why would He add conflict to it? Does God, is it not right? I mean, does God not like marriage? Sure He does. Just like He likes family. Just like He likes the garden. None of these are bad. But they all serve as a very poor substitute to the real thing. And He is primarily interested in us discovering the real thing more than He is in us having good substitutes. And so what we see even in a marriage, in a relationship here, there's conflict. So everywhere we turn, we never find satisfaction. No matter where we go, it just doesn't seem to work. Until we can return and stop being this, this bottomless pit where everyone pours into us, and instead we could return to receiving life from God who truly satisfies us. So much so that it overflows us that you can't help but love and accept other people. It just becomes the most natural outflow of it. Because when God starts flowing into your life, you cannot dam that up. And that's what God's desiring. But to get us to that point, to get us to that place where we're willing to trust Him and rely upon Him, He's going to block every other way. We see a great story of this in, in the story of Hosea. Hosea, great man of God. And then God comes to him and says, Hosea, have I got a wife for you? <laughs> Hosea says, great, wonderful. Great ministry opportunities. I can't wait to see who you picked for me, God. Yet, yeah, I picked Gomer. Hosea begins to think, Gomer. God, I only know one Gomer. She's a prostitute. So, so is she out of town? Is she a cousin of someone? Have I not met her yet? No, no, you got the right Gomer. You're going to marry the town prostitute. Can't imagine. I just picture Hosea's face at that point in time. The shock that that's who God is wanting him to marry. And here's why. Because God's trying to create a picture where God is Hosea, the holy man. And guess who's Gomer, the prostitute? We are. And it says in chapter 2, it tells a story of how Gomer has gone to all her many lovers seeking for them everything she needs, her food, her wine, her clothing, her partying, her flaxseed, her oil, everything she needs, she's been going to all these other lovers instead of her husband, the one who wants to provide, the one who wants to give to her. And so God says, because your mother has acted shamefully, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will block her path. She will pursue her lovers, but she will never overtake them. It's exactly this. It's the blessing that God gave to man, to Adam and Eve in the garden. I will frustrate you. I will block your ways so you will never find satisfaction in all your other lovers. And then he says something interesting. I think it's in about verse 7. He says, I will do this because it is I who has provided all their needs through her lovers. What he's saying is, I've always been the source. I may have used other people to provide it to you, but I'm the source. And what you have mistaken is you've mistaken the other vessel, the, the, the delivery transport truck, to be the source, but I'm the source. I was just using your spouse. I was using your friends to provide to you the life and love that you need. But you thought it was coming from them, and that's why you pursued them instead of pursuing me. And so I will take you out into the wilderness, 
and I will deprive you of your food, your oil, your wine, your flaxseed, your clothes. I will strip you naked so you have nothing. Isn't that exciting? And he says, when you're in this time, when you're in this wilderness, then I will allure you. I will romance you. I will woo you, dare we say, so that you come back to me. And he says, I will take this valley of, of Achor. And Achor is where Ai, the, the, the sin of Achan and Ai, where Achan and his whole family was killed, they, they named it the valley of Achor because Achor means trouble. He says, I will take this valley of trouble and turn it into a doorway of hope. You see, all this pain and suffering and sorrow that is going on in our lives, that is God's doorway of hope for you and I, that we will return to Him to trust Him. And if you already are trusting Him and you've got pain and sorrow and suffering, guess what that means? You can trust Him more. Because there is nobody here on planet Earth that trusts Him perfectly and completely all the time. And we're always moving, we're always progressing, so we trust Him more in a deeper way. So how many people here have some pain, sorrow, conflict, troubles in their life right now? Hallelujah! Amen, right? (laughs) Isn't that exciting? Because that is the journey you're on. That God has ordained this, this conflict to be your, your door of hope. The valley of trouble you are in right now is the door of hope that God's saying, will you come to me and trust me? That, and when we do, that doesn't make all of a sudden pain go away. Because the gospel is not come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. That is not the gospel. I thought it was the gospel for many years. For probably about the first 20 years of my Christian life, I thought that was the Gospel. It's not. It's come to Jesus that you might know Him. It's come to Jesus that you might trust Him. Come to Jesus that you might rely upon Him, that He would live in and through you, that He could love other people through you. That's what He's wanting to do. And so, all this pain, toil, conflict, sorrow, are all the the motivators to push us to Him. The question for you and I then is, how do we respond to these things? Do we respond like I often do when these come and to fight and to kick against them? Or do we try and find a way around them so I don't have to deal with them? Or maybe we we just flee. We just run and hide and and just go and hide ourselves under the covers and hope that tomorrow we'll shed a whole new day and, and everything will just take care of itself, you know? Conflict will disappear. Is that how we're going to respond to them? Or will we respond to them the way that God wants us to? Embrace them for what they are. Embrace them for the the tools that God has ordained in our lives to draw us into that relationship with Him, to trust Him. To choose to say, God, I, I choose to rely upon You to deal with this pain and this sorrow, these struggles. I choose to let you live your life through me for you to do whatever you want. Is he the King of Kings? Amen. So can he not do whatever he wants? I think so. But here's the good news. Not only is he the King of Kings, he's the one that loves you more than anyone else in this entire universe. He loves you perfectly. And he's in complete control. So all the toil, conflict, and pain that is in your life is the opportunity that God's using. Too often we blame the devil. I think the devil's at work here and, and the devil's doing this and the devil's doing that. 
Listen, the devil is still the servant of God. That has never changed. When he rebelled, he rebelled, but he didn't become equal to God. He has always remained far, far below God. And he can't act without God's permission. We learned that in Job. That's the good news. The bad news is God gives Satan permission. But the point is to restore this, where we can receive life from God, share that with our spouse, with other people, and then share that with our work and our family and the world around us. But if we don't get this right, none of this matters. But if you get this right, everything else falls into place. So, I want you to see two things. One, see the process that we're all in. The process that we're going through conflict, pain, and toil to, to drive us back to that dependent relationship upon Jesus Christ. But two, to also recognize that we're all on this journey. You're not the only one. Every single person on this planet Earth is with, on this journey. Every single person is going through toil, conflict, pain, suffering, sorrow, in some form, in some way. And you know what? We all fail. We're all a work in progress. We're all learning to trust God. What's the key word there? Learning. We're all learning to rely upon Him. And if we can understand that, we can now give grace to other people. I can give grace to Brian because Brian doesn't have it all together yet. Because I don't have it all together yet. And so I'm now free to love and accept Brian despite what he's going through, despite what's happening. And in fact, what I can be to Brian now is I can be the person to remind him, come back to God. Trust Him in this moment, in this time. Because He is what you need. He is sufficient for this. And in doing so, I fulfilled my role as a community of grace. And so what happens now, going back to this chart, we want to become a community of grace where we're no longer living out of our flesh, but living out of Christ who lives in us as a result of the cross. Now we're all going through this process. This process of training in order that we might trust. And this is a lifetime course. You graduate this on this the day you die or Jesus comes to take you home. But it is so worth it. And this suffering, Paul says, this suffering that is going on, this difficult time, is temporary and momentary. Sorry, this light and momentary suffering, he says. So it's, it's but a moment, it's temporary and it's light. Now, you might be thinking, Paul, you have no idea what you're talking about. What I'm going through is neither light nor temporary. But think about the Apostle Paul was a man who later on in the same letter talks about how he was shipwrecked three times, beaten within an inch of his life three times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was bitten by poisonous snakes. He's facing wild beasts in Ephesus, he says in another letter. I mean, this is a man who knows suffering, who knows conflict, who knows sorrow. And he says, it is but a momentary and light affliction. But it is producing within us an eternal weight of glory that simply does not compare. It's worth it. Um, 
Second Corinthians four seventeen ish. It's at the end of four. So it's producing within us this eternal weight of glory. It's worth it. So let's not fight against it. Let's not kick and scream against it. Let's embrace it and let God do what He's wanting to do in us. That's where I'm at. Now my first instinct is to kick. My second instinct is to find a way around it. And then my third instinct is to then run and hide. But then fourthly, eventually I come around and say, God, I want You more than I want to live a pain-free life. So I choose in this moment to trust You. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your your blessing that we read about in Genesis 3. Where You have, have ordained a journey for every one of us. Where You pursue us relentlessly. Regardless of how many times we choose to find life somewhere else. You continue to come back over and over and over again and draw your, us to Yourself that we might find life in You. May we continue on that journey. May we learn to react quickly to trusting You. That You might live in and through us and that those around us might benefit as they see Your life living through us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.